What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. back to another episode of All Crime No Cattle. I'm Shay. I'm Aaron. And today we are coming back to our two-parter for a conclusion, Revenge in Kaufman County Part 2. I'm really interested in getting to the bottom of what happened in this case, and I can't wait to get to it, but I also have to point out that this is our centennial mark for the show. We've hit a hundred episodes of All Crime No Cattle. Who would have believed it? I would not have. When we first started the show, it was kind of a lark, and now here we are at 100 episodes. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, very exciting. If we had maybe planned it ahead of schedule, we wouldn't have had the 100th episode on a two-parter, so we could have had (laughs) maybe a special episode, but maybe we can do something special in the future, in the next month or two. Yeah, next month is the anniversary of the show. Maybe we can do something special next month. Yeah, there we go. Well, until then, let's get down to business and let's start this episode. Yeah, let's begin with a short synopsis of part one. We learned about Kaufman County Assistant District Attorney Mark Hassey, who was gunned down on his way to the courthouse one morning in late January 2013. His murder triggered a massive response, and a specialized task force made of local, state, and federal agencies joined together in the small town of Kaufman to investigate. The immediate conclusion was that Mark had been murdered in the line of duty with his killers targeting him in retaliation for a case that he had prosecuted. But Mark had prosecuted hundreds of cases in his career, so the possibilities seemed endless. While the media jumped on reporting the speculation that Mark was targeted by the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas or Mexican drug cartels, the reality was law enforcement didn't really think they were responsible. But the only other lead they had was disgraced ex-Justice of the Peace, Eric Williams, whom Mark had prosecuted for theft the year before. However, Eric had cooperated completely with the investigation, and there was no evidence that linked him to the murder. We ended the last episode two months after Mark's death, at the end of March, which happened to be Easter weekend. By then, although the investigation still remained active, the task force had been disbanded, and people had started to relax. 
the tight fear that had gripped Mark's colleagues and the country's elected officials that something else bad was going to happen had abated. And I think people really started feeling secure that Mark's murder was just a tragic but isolated event. And so for Easter weekend, the first sort of major holiday since it happened, it was agreed that the security details that had been given to certain officials would be suspended completely to allow officers time to enjoy the holiday weekend. That included the detail on the home of Kaufman County District Attorney Mike McClelland, who lived with his wife Cynthia McClelland in their home in Forney, Texas, located about 15 miles northwest of Kaufman. So they were a little bit out of town. Yeah, and uh, if I remember correctly, Mike was Mark's boss. Mike was the DA, and he was also very close friends with Mark before he passed away. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mike, who was 63 at the time, and his wife Cynthia, who was 65, had met later in life, marrying in 1995 when they were both in their late 40s. Cynthia grew up in Dallas and earned a bachelor's in psychology from Austin College and a master's degree in psychology from Texas Women's University. Like Mike, she worked as a clinical psychologist for much of her life before deciding to change careers. At the age of 52, she enrolled in nursing school at Del Mar College for nursing and eventually became a registered nurse. She began working as an RN at Terrell State Hospital, a psychiatric treatment center in Terrell, Texas. And over time, she became nurse supervisor. So her and Mike both had very successful careers, and they both had parallels in their careers. They both started off as clinical psychologists moved on to different careers, but then still used that psychology background in their new careers. I thought that was an interesting parallel between, between them. Oh, well, that's really interesting. Mike and Cynthia also had adult children from previous marriages. Mike had a daughter named Krista and sons JR and Josh. And Cynthia had a son, Nathan, and a daughter, Christina. And I believe at this point, they also had at least one or two grandchildren as well. So they had a, a, you know, decent sized family. Big family. Now, I know it's a trope, but friends and family describe Mike and Cynthia as a true case of opposites attract. While Mike was very serious, stern, remember he was a military guy. Sure. Cynthia was described as very warm, gentle, and nurturing. In her free time, she loved to cook and bake and quilt, and she often gifted people her baked goods or handcrafted quilts. One of her favorite things to do was to entertain and host parties in her home, and Easter was going to be no exception. This year, Cynthia was planning a scavenger hunt where the prizes were Easter baskets that she had filled with personalized presents for each person. Oh, wow. Yeah. That sounds nice. Of course. And after that, she was going to serve a huge Easter feast with everything, of course, being made from scratch. Wow. That sounds like a lot of stress and planning. It does, but some people love it. And Cynthia was very much one of those people who loved caring for others. Yeah, and it sounds like she also likes creating things and crafting and cooking and all that. So a bunch of friends and family were invited, including their close friends Leah and Skeet Phillips. Saturday, March 30th, was the day before Easter. And so it was the big day to start prepping all the food and decorations for the party. We all know how this goes. Right before a big holiday, like Thanksgiving is about to come up. You got to, the whole day before is spent prepping everything for the holiday festivities. Yeah, for sure. You got to get get the house clean. You got to get all the decorations, everything lined up. 
So the plan was for Leah to bring over some fresh vegetables and fruit for Cynthia to use for the meal. But when Leah called late that morning, Cynthia didn't answer. Leah wasn't worried initially, but neither Cynthia nor Mike responded to any of her phone calls or text messages throughout the morning and into the afternoon. It worried her enough that she decided to go to their house in person. Yeah, that's concerning. Especially with what everybody knows is already going on. You kind of already have that in in the back of your head, I'm sure. When she arrived, she noticed that Cynthia's car was parked outside, but found it odd that the newspaper was still sitting on the front porch. She knew that Cynthia had a very particular routine that included reading the newspaper every morning. And it was already well into the afternoon at this point. Yeah, that is weird. And when she knocked on the door, no one answered. Leah didn't know what to do, so she called her son, CJ, who happened to be a police officer in Dallas. She told him the whole story, and CJ agreed that it was concerning. They decided to all meet up back at the McClelland house, along with Skeet, Leah's husband and CJ's stepfather, so they could have a look around and decide what to do from there. Okay, well, they sound very responsible with their actions. This this seems good of concerned friends to be doing what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And you can understand why they're concerned at this point. Yeah. And it's not just her. She's talking to family and friends and nobody has heard from them oh, all day. Wow. Exactly. So a, a growing sense of concern then. Yes. When they all arrived, they once again knocked at the door and no one answered. But this time, one of them tried the knob and they discovered that the door was unlocked. They stepped inside, calling out to Cynthia and Mike, when Leah looked down and saw two spent shell casings on the ground in the entryway. Well, that is not a good sign. Exactly. And Leah said she just collapsed on the floor in tears because she instantly realized that Mike and Cynthia were dead. Wow. CJ stepped further into the living room where he confirmed Leah's worst fears. He saw Cynthia's body lying face up in a pool of blood. CJ led his mother outside to console her, while Skeet ventured further into the house, discovering Mike's body in a hallway that led to a back bedroom. There were shell casings strewn everywhere, and it was clear both victims had been shot several times. CJ reached out to the Kaufman County Sheriff's Office to report the murders. Obviously, the murders of Mike and Cynthia McClelland were a huge shock and incredibly sad. They yeah. left, as we said, but they left behind five children, grandchildren, and so many friends and colleagues. Yeah. But the murders were also really terrifying. Just when people were starting to feel safe again, there's a double murder. Yeah. This one in a home invasion where an innocent family member had also been killed. And on the day that they removed the patrols, that is quite the coincidence. Yeah, exactly. And also extra terrifying. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like confirmation of a lot of people's worst fears, that there is some sort of serial killer or assassination campaign targeting members of the criminal justice system, specifically people at the Kaufman County DA's office. Now, I mentioned last episode that Mark Hasse had been only the 12th prosecutor murdered in the line of duty in modern U.S. history, making it an uncommon crime. Two murders of prosecutors at a single DA's office like this was absolutely unprecedented. Nothing like this had ever happened before. 
which I'm sure just adds to the sense of terror, impending doom for everyone else who works for the city and of the DA's course. office. So all of the old security measures were reinstated in full force. The armed escorts, the police details, some judges just left town completely. Obviously, this was scary for a lot of people in this community. Yeah, this is crazy. Now, as far as the investigation goes, the huge multi-agency task force created for Mark Hassey's murder was renewed once again and extended to cover the McClellan's murders as well. So once again, it's all hands on deck. At the McClelland home, 20 shell casings were collected. All were two twenty-three caliber, the type used in assault rifles like AR-15s. Oh, wow. Was the first uh, killing done with an assault rifle as well? It was not. It was with two revolvers. Oh, so okay. we know that this was a completely different type of murder weapon than used in the first one. Interesting. Both Cynthia and Mike were still wearing their night clothes when their bodies were found, leaving mm. investigators to conclude that they had been attacked early on Saturday morning. Records from their security system soon confirmed this. The sensor on the front door recorded it had been opened at 6.40 a.m. and then again at 6.42. That meant that the killer or killers gained entry to the home, fired at least 20 rounds, killed two people, and then left in less than two minutes' time. This almost seems like a professional hit. Yeah, it does. And it, like you said, it happened so fast and it was strategic. It seemed like they knew what they were doing. They knew who they were there to kill. They didn't take anything. No, there was no evidence just that a, anything was missing from the just house. Just an assassination straight up. Yes. Get out. Two minutes. That is so fast. Yeah. Now, did the security system have any cameras or no? It's interesting that you asked that question because, yes, Mike actually had recently installed cameras at the house. Unfortunately, they were not yet hooked up. Ah, oh, really? Yes. And at the time, the alarm system wasn't actually set. So the alarm didn't go off or anything either. So we just have the sensor data from opening and closing the doors. Yes, and that's it. That's exactly right. On top of that, there was no sign of forced entry to the home. That meant either that a door or window had been unlocked, and that's how the person got in, which would have been very unusual for the McClellans, especially... Under the circumstances. Exactly. Or it meant that the McClellans felt safe enough to open the door to their attacker, as if this was someone they recognized. Crime scene investigators tried recreating the scene based off this information. It was likely the couple had still been sleeping at this early hour on a Saturday morning, and they had probably been roused awake by a knock at the door. Due to Cynthia's location nearer to the door, investigators believed it was she who answered the door to the killer. That's what I would have guessed, too. Once inside the home, the killer or killers must have immediately began shooting, given the location of the spent shell casings on the floor of the entryway. Cynthia had probably tried to flee, but had quickly been gunned down in the living room. Mike, meanwhile, had most likely been standing in the back of the living room when the shooting began, because there were drops of blood there. And he probably tried to run down the hallway to the spare bedroom before also being gunned down. Yeah, that seems to track. Now, autopsies showed that Cynthia had been shot somewhere between five and eight times total while Mike had been shot around 15 times. Ooh. 
In fact, there were multiple shell casings located inches away from his body, showing that the killer stood over Mike, shooting him repeatedly after he'd already gone down. Kind of like rageful overkill. Exactly. So this disparity seemed to suggest overkill and that Mike was the primary target of Mm -hmm. the attack. Everything about these murders had clearly been carefully orchestrated, as you already said. They were in and out quickly, and no one in the neighborhood reported hearing or seeing anything unusual that morning. That's interesting. I wonder if they were using a suppressor or something uh, to make the noise lower. Because you would think that many shots, someone would hear something. Yeah, maybe. I mean, they didn't know at this point. It, It is unusual for 20 shots from... Some sort of assault rifle, most likely an AR-15. You'd think somebody would have heard that. Yeah, I mean, we've lived in neighborhoods before and you can hear gunshots from far away in your house. Yeah. But investigators were able to collect surveillance footage from various houses and businesses in the immediate area. On several cameras, they identified a vehicle driving towards the direction of the McClelland home just moments before 6.40 a.m., and then away again just moments after 6.42. Ah, interesting. What did this vehicle look like? The vehicle was a white Crown Victoria. So a different car than what eyewitnesses described as the getaway car in Mark's murder. Although they could technically be considered similar because the other car was described as a light-colored sedan. Ah, okay. But that one, the eyewitnesses basically settled on it being maybe a Ford Taurus. It oh, was not okay. a, a Crown Vic. So a different make and model. All yes, right. exactly. Cool. Law enforcement canvassed the neighborhood and no one in the area owned a Crown Vic or knew anyone who owned one. So that car was out of place. Yeah, it's coming from outside the neighborhood. Yes. Now, white Crown Victoria police interceptors used to be the default vehicle driven by police officers. Oh, yeah, for a long time. Mm -hmm. So was it possible that the killer was a police officer or were they posing as a member of law enforcement? Interesting. That could explain why Cynthia had answered the door that morning. She might have thought there was an emergency and law enforcement were trying to contact her husband the right. district attorney. Yeah, and also they had had these patrols and stuff like yeah. you know around the house all the time, so that would be the perfect disguise for a hit hitman. It sure would. Now it probably won't surprise you to learn that law enforcement reached out to Eric Williams the very night of the murders. After all, Mike himself had been vocal about Eric Williams being Mark's killer. Mhm. In addition, the DA's office and the various law enforcement agents had dug through Mike and Mark's mutual caseloads to quickly discover that the case against Eric had been the only one the two had worked together. He was the only common denominator between them in three years. That makes sense. So the night of the murders, a sheriff's deputy called Eric on his cell phone to inform him of the sad news of the murders. He asked that Eric meet with him and answer some questions. Eric responded that he and his wife, Kim, were currently in Quinlan, a town about 40 miles northeast of Kaufman. But he offered to drive back into town right away to meet with a deputy. And Mm. he did exactly that. How convenient. Yeah. They were north of town. The deputy asked Eric to explain his whereabouts for the day. And Eric said that he had been with his wife, Kim, at her parents' house all day long. Then, at about 8.30 or so that night, 
he and Kim had decided on a whim to take a drive, and that's why they were up in Quinlan when the deputy had called. Both Eric and Kim agreed to hand over their cell phones to be searched for any evidence connecting them to the McClellan's murders. When asked if he'd recently fired a weapon, Eric said no, that he hadn't shot a gun since before his arrest for theft. So that had been months and months before this at this point. They asked if he would take another gunshot residue test. If you remember, they had asked him to take one immediately after Mark's murder as well, and it had come up negative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the prime suspect at that point. Yes. So the deputy took the swabs, and that was that. The swabs were sent in for testing, but it would be a few days before they would get the results back. Easter Sunday, a day that should have been filled with celebration for the McClelland family, was instead spent in mourning. That evening, a message was sent to the Kaufman County Crime Stoppers website. It read, quote, Offense type, homicide. Victim information, Mark Hassey. Do we have your full attention now? Only a response from Judge Bruce Wood will be answered. You have 48 hours. What? Yes. Okay, so now it sounds like it's going back into the direction of organized crime. Exactly. So we have this message. They're using the word we. So it appears to be from a group. group? Yeah. Or at least somebody pretending they are part of a group. And they are claiming responsibility for Mark's death and demanding a response from Bruce Wood, who was at the time the county judge of Kaufman County. Now, to be fair, this could be a really smart idea to do something like this if there was a singular killer right to like because you said that the Aryan brotherhood and Mm -hmm. organized crime thing was mostly in the media yes it's in the media which means it's on everybody's mind because that's what everybody's being exposed to is this is all of this reporting about it being the abt right and if you're a singular killer of these individuals then you would know about all this exactly Hmm. so this feeds back into that idea okay now, the whole purpose of the Crime Stoppers websites is for the public to be able to send in anonymous tips to law enforcement without fear of reprisal. Therefore, when a message is submitted to the site, no identifying information, such as the user's IP address, for example, is recorded. Instead, the message is automatically assigned a unique tracking number. And it's my understanding that that number can then be used by the tipster to log back in and track replies back and forth between them and law enforcement. Oh, wow. The next morning, investigators sent a response. Very short and sweet. You have our attention. How can the judge contact you? That night, they received a reply. Quote, message through this secure format only. Your act of faith will result in no other attacks this week. As proof, Mark Hassey was killed with 38 caliber plus P ammunition, 147 grain hydroshock ammunition fired from a 3-inch 357 five-shot revolver. Judge Wood must offer a resignation of one of the four main judges in Kaufman, district or county court, list stress or family concerns or whatever else sounds deniable. The media will understand. My superiors will see this as a first step to ending our actions. Do not report any details of this arrangement. You have until Friday at 4 o'clock p.m. We are not unreasonable, but we will not be stopped. 
Wow. Yes. That is wild. Terrifying. And just to be clear, the description of the ammunition used in Mark Cassie's murder was exactly right. And, of course, this proved that the tips seemed to be coming from somebody who was responsible for his murder. Whew. And then, and again, referring back to my superiors, like this is an organization. Okay. Exactly. And this organization is demanding the resignation of a judge on threat of further bloodshed. Yeah, as the first step. So, like, there yeah. might be other judges. Like, they might take down the whole justice system of Kaufman County. That's at this point. what they're kind of suggesting, aren't they? Wow. Investigators responded the following morning, hoping to encourage communication and draw out further details. Quote, we have received a number of tips and yours is the most credible. We are working on your demands. A lot has been put out to the media. In order for us to verify that you are a part of this group, can you give us additional details that are specific to this case and not known by the press? Now, to jump a little forward in this story, law enforcement never received a reply, and the date and time mentioned in the message, which was Friday, April 5th at 4 p.m., that time came and went, and nothing happened. And I'm guessing they did not fire that judge. They didn't. So okay. they, they basically didn't respond or, or do anything. Uh-huh. And this also didn't go out to the media. So this is something just between the tipster, whoever this person was or this group is, and law enforcement. Yeah. So the demands weren't met and time expired. Yes. Now, while all of that was happening and law enforcement was tackling this new complication, the news that Eric Williams had been questioned after the murders of Mark Hassey and the McClellans finally reached the media. Up to this point, the speculation that he was involved had been contained mostly to law enforcement, as well as family, friends, and colleagues close to the case. So Eric's name had never really been on the radar publicly. So when the press got wind of the story, this judge who had been convicted for theft by the people who had been murdered, I mean, Mm -hmm. everyone wanted to talk to him. It started out with local news stations, who Eric Williams obliged with a couple of quick telephone interviews. Then they started showing up to his house, and he agreed to a few short interviews in person as well. One crew from Channel 2 News in Houston showed up to his home only to find him outside driving around the neighborhood on his Segway. Oh, doing his patrol thing. Yeah. Eric agreed to an on-camera interview, telling the reporter, quote, My heartfelt condolences go out to the McClellan family and the Hassey family because they were in public office doing the right thing, and for some reason that we're not aware of, paid the ultimate price for that. What's strange is that Eric gave this interview while still standing on his Segway. And he also allowed the crew to shoot B-roll of him zipping up and down the street on it. Oh. All with this goofy look on his face. And then this entire segment was put on the news. And it's just wild because this man was being looked at in connection to three murders in the biggest murder investigation going on in the nation. That sounds... And he is just this, this goofy guy rolling around town in a Segway. And his his statement isn't, like, extremely heartfelt either, you know? It's not, like, full of sadness and, and woe for what happened. It's just like, 
very a matter of fact, like planned out statement. And then he's going to zip up and down on a Segway and show that I'm performing patrol in the neighborhood. It's just weird. The whole yeah. thing is really weird. Yeah, pretty much. Now, he also spoke to the Dallas Morning News, but he basically told all of these publications the same thing. He was very sad for the families, but he did not have anything to do with the murders. By the time the big national papers like the New York Times and the L.A. Times started contacting him for interviews, though, he started refusing to talk entirely. So there was just a couple of days in there where he let his guard down and and talked publicly. And after that, he was quiet again. I wonder if he'd been in contact with a lawyer at that point or something. Uh, or if he just decided the pressure... I am positive pressure... his lawyers told him to stop talking yeah. to the media. <laughs> yeah, just, <laughs> yes. Just stop. Yeah. But by that time, the results of the second gunshot residue test had come back. And this time, the swabs taken of Eric Williams' hands tested positive for oh, gunshot residue. You don't say. Now, that meant that Eric had most likely either discharged a weapon or handled a recently discharged weapon within hours of when the swabs had been taken. It was certainly interesting, but it wasn't necessarily proof he'd been involved in the murders, which had occurred somewhere around 14 hours before the swabs were taken. Yeah, just circumstantial. Yeah, pretty much. Now, if we, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but just as a little refresher, Gunshot residue dissipates quickly. It can be transferred off the hands. It can be transferred onto the hands. Yeah, you can shake hands with someone and transfer. Yes, exactly. And it can be removed entirely with just basically one decent hands washing. So it seemed more likely that he'd been exposed to gunshot residue within a few hours of when the swabs had been taken and not that this was a clear-cut evidence that he had shot the McClellans 14 hours before. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. He would have have to have gone that entire 14 hours without washing without his hands. Without touching anything, yeah. basically. Yes, yeah. which is a little silly to think about. But it did potentially catch him in a lie because he had claimed he hadn't shot a gun in months. That's what I was going to say. He was just like, oh, no, I haven't been around guns at all. Yeah. Then there was another breakthrough. Analysts had been combing through the records associated with Eric's account with the legal research software called LexisNexis. It's basically a huge database that lawyers use to access records and legal data to do research for cases. It's a really, really powerful tool for lawyers. Sure. They discovered that Eric had searched the names of Mark Hassey as well as Mike McClelland several times. First, in 2012, around when his trial for theft was first happening. And most recently, just before Mark's murder. So why is he up to that? I mean, that seems suspicious. Yeah, it is suspicious. Why would he be doing research on the prosecutors who are who are trying him for theft? Yeah. Now, the timing, though, is really interesting because he was still using LexisNexis even though his law license had been revoked by that time. Oh, so and, he was still in the system. Yeah, exactly. He, In theory, he should no longer have had access to his LexisNexis lawyer account, account essentially. Yeah. But he was still using it. Apparently, there was some sort of oversight where his account was never disabled. Well, that's a huge oversight. Yeah. Now, the searches had pulled up all sorts of results on Mike and Mark, including their home addresses. 
In total, Eric had spent hours perusing these search results. And on January 23rd, the week before Mark Hassey's murder, Eric searched LexisNexis for a license plate number that turned out to belong to a vehicle owned by one of Mark Hassey's neighbors. That's That's, weird. Yeah, it suggested that Eric had been scoping out Mark's neighborhood, had seen this vehicle parked somewhere near Mark's house, and was trying to identify the owner. Oh, I see. Yeah. And even more scary, authorities combing through all of these LexisNexis records later discovered other searches for the names of Toby Shook and Bill Wersky, the two special prosecutors from Dallas who had been called into town to handle the case. Whoa, so they might be next? I mean... If this is what's happening? If that's what's happening, yeah. Whoa. So with the positive gunshot residue test, as well as the LexisNexis search history, authorities finally had what they needed to move forward in their investigation of Eric Williams, and they were able to secure a search warrant of his home. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. you got to search that guy's house that's now. That's right. Now, inside, they found the packaging of a three fifty seven caliber handgun, the same that was used in Mark's murder. But just the packaging. Like just the box. packaging, yes. Okay. As well as the lower components of a couple of AR-15s, the same weapon that was thought to be used in the McClelland murders. Okay, so lower components like magazines or like handles or stocks, like... <laughs> Yeah, so that's the thing. AR-15s break down into two components. The upper component is the part with the barrel. Mm -hmm. What they found at his house were just the lower components, the part that houses the trigger and magazine. I gotcha. Yeah, so even if they were used in the murder, there was no way to confirm that with ballistics because the lower component doesn't actually ever make contact with the bullet. And that's how you track it ballistically. Yeah, ballistics is is looking at the scars that the bullets make based on the, the shape of the interior of the barrel of the gun. Yeah. Yeah. They also found a large amount of military gear at his house, similar to what Mark's shooter was seen wearing. Ah, in the first killing. Yeah, because it was somebody who was in military gear. Yes, all black military gear. Yes. Tucked away in a filing cabinet in the garage, though, they found an owner's manual and a title for a white 2000 Ford Crown Victoria. Oh, Interesting. Yes, obviously very exciting because they suspected that a white Crown Vic was involved in the McClellan's murder. But the most damning evidence was something they probably did not expect. A very innocuous looking note written on an old tax receipt. It was two sets of alphanumeric code, W695-196 and W695-189. Law enforcement passed the note around trying to figure out what it was, and it didn't take long before someone recognized that the code was in the same format as the tracking numbers assigned to tips on the Kaufman County Crime Stoppers website. that right there, my friend, is a smoking gun. Mm -hmm. You are the messenger. Yeah. Okay. So, of course, when they checked the first number in the system, lo and behold, they got a match to the messages that had taken responsibility for Mark Hassey's murder and threatened even more. What an idiot. <laughs> like, why do you even need to write that down? Well, because again, I 
as far as I understand, the system worked where you used that number to then log back oh, in and track. You have to have the tracking number. Yes. Okay. That's the I only way that you would figure out that you would get access to the response from law enforcement is gotcha. if you had that okay. known number. That's the only identifying information associated with the messages. I was confused. I thought you were saying that the law enforcement had to use the number to access the... Well, yes. I mean, that's... They both do. They both do. It's a two-way street. Exactly, yes. Uh, Okay. So, all right. Then maybe maybe just destroy that then, dumb criminal. Yeah. You'd think that that would be a smart move. But remember, there were two numbers Mm -hmm. on that piece of paper. The second number was connected with an even earlier tip that had been submitted to the website about four weeks after Mark Hassey's death and three or four weeks before the McClellan's murders. Oh, so he had tried to do this before. Yes. Well, this is what the message read for that tip. Quote, overheard this guy talking about the hit on that DA guy, said his buddy and another guy did it and got a cool vacation down south Mexico way. Free girls, drugs, and booze. They're supposed to be back next week in Athens. Texas. Athens, Texas. Right, not, right. Yeah, not, not Greece. Greece. <laughs> um, didn't hear nothing else. Some guy named Bull, six foot, 240 pounds, 30 years old, drove a blue Chevy pickup. So that was that was the tip. Well, I can see why there were no takers. Maybe that's why his second tip was so detailed and like just like, hey, for real, it's me this time. <laughs> well, I mean, th- these were two completely different types of tips. This yeah. this initial one clearly was just somebody trying to throw the investigation off. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, law enforcement hadn't ever replied to this message. And as far as I know, they hadn't even looked into it further. So for whatever, you know, they saw this and they were like, there's nothing to go on here. This is really vague. This isn't, isn't what we're looking for. We don't believe it. And they moved on. I would love to speak to someone who has to go through these tips. Yeah. At some time. I agree. You know, at some point, just like. How do they figure it out? <laughs> yeah. So this little scrap of paper enabled investigators to finally arrest Eric Williams on the charge of making a terroristic threat. It wasn't justice for three murders, but at least it put him safely behind bars where he couldn't hurt anyone while the murder investigation continued. That's interesting. Yeah, because he did make a threat to the entire like justice system of Kaufman County. Absolutely. That in itself is an offense. Mm -hmm. Interesting. News of the search of Eric Williams' home and his arrest for making a terroristic threat spread fast. The very next day, a man named Roger contacted prosecutors. Roger and Eric had served in the same regiment together in the Texas State Guard, and in fact, Eric had been Roger's superior. Even after the theft trial and Eric's dismissal from the Guard, the two had remained friends, and it was clear that Roger still really respected Eric. Roger told the prosecutors that back in December 2012, so this would have been about a month before Mark's murder, Eric had told him that his in-laws needed to rent a storage unit for some of their old belongings. Eric said that Kim's parents were elderly and not in good health, so he was trying to make the arrangements for them. However, he worried that if he put the unit in his own name, Then the authorities would find out, and then they'd come and try to search it or otherwise harass him about the the storage unit. Of course, this is on account of the ongoing witch hunt against him. Mm -hmm. He asked if Roger would put the unit in his name. That way, his poor elderly in-laws wouldn't be hounded. Roger said that he agreed readily, 
And soon after, Eric asked him to meet at a facility called Gibson Self-Storage in Seagoville, located about 30 minutes west of Kaufman. Eric gave Roger about $1,000 in cash to pay for the unit up front for a whole year. And Roger put his name down on unit number 18, a 10 by 20 foot storage unit. That's a big storage unit. It is a big unit. What do you think could be in there? A vehicle? Hmm. Roger said that they'd handled the transaction smoothly and he hadn't heard anything about it since. But he decided to come forward with the information once hearing about the searches and the arrest. To be clear, though, even though Roger came forward with this information, it didn't appear as though he personally thought Eric was actually the killer. And in fact, according to court records, Roger told them about the unit thinking it would help to ultimately clear Eric somehow. Hmm, but it doesn't sound like it's going to. Hmm, well, let's see. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously, a search warrant for the storage unit was immediately requested. And on Saturday, April 13th, law enforcement gathered at Gibson Self-Storage to carry out the search. A huge team assembled at the unit to open it up including the prosecutors, the police chief, the sheriff, FBI agents, Texas Rangers, it was everybody, all (laughs) hoping that the storage unit was going to be the key to solving three murders. Sure, yeah. And when they opened the door to the unit, the first thing everyone saw was a white 2004 Ford Crown Victoria. Oh, Victoria. Mm Mm-hmm. You do produce... So the gathered crowd started cheering, hugging, and high-fiving each other. Some even broke down into tears. It was very emotional because they knew they had him at this point. Sure, yeah. And like, no more terror will happen to anyone else. Yeah. Bill Wersky told 48 Hours, quote, It was like Christmas morning and the Dallas Cowboys winning the Super Bowl all rolled into one. (laughs) Now, besides the Crown Vic... The rest of the unit was filled to the brim with military and police gear as well as weapons. Ah, so this is his hidey hole for all of his uh, ill deeds. Basically. There were bulletproof vests, police uniforms, including shirts with police labeled on them, patches from various law enforcement agencies, including the sheriff's department. There were boxes and trunks and bags filled with thousands of rounds of ammunition, along with huge collections of knives and machetes. There was even a crossbow. What? Over 30 firearms were collected from the unit, including more lower components from AR-15s. But there were even more bizarre items found inside, including several pickle jars filled with a strange yellow substance that lab tests later proved to be homemade napalm. Whoa! There was also what law enforcement referred to as some sort of explosive device. It was a lighter and a dog toy, one of those tennis balls on a rope. Sure. Duct taped to a container of lighter fluid. I don't know how that is supposed to work, but it was considered an explosive device. Okay. Finally, in the bottom of a duffel bag, investigators found one single unfired round of 223 caliber ammunition, the same type used in the McClelland murders. Even though the bullet was unfired, there were still markings found on it, and ballistics experts found that the marks matched the ones on the shell casings recovered at the McClellan's home. 
That meant that the bullet found in the storage unit had been cycled through the same AR-15 that had been used in the murders. So these are marks from the this particular bullet going through the same gun that the ones that were actually fired yes. went through. Okay. Most likely, the bullet had been chambered and ready to go, but then it had been removed probably in order to clean the weapon. Oh, wow. So it still had the markings from the barrel the and all of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it ha- hadn't actually been fired. That's crazy. So this was the next best thing to finding the actual murder weapon in the McClellan murders. Yeah. Besides the treasure trove of evidence within the storage unit, investigators found that unit number 18 at Gibson self-storage had been accessed multiple times since it had been rented out, including both right before and right after each of the murders. How did they know that? It was records that they found within the offices of the storage facility where any time any of their units were accessed, it would have a timestamp. Oh, so it's like an electric mechanism yeah. that can do it. Okay, because exactly, like when yeah. I'm thinking of storage units, I'm thinking of like you bring your own lock or like a lock's provided to you and it's like a key. Okay, so yep. it's like a digital timestamp. Okay. Exactly. And maybe that was something that they only have on these big units uh, or something as opposed to like a little storage locker. You sure. probably wouldn't have any way to like test to see when people accessed it. But on this yeah. big unit, they did. Interesting. So it looked, like you said, like the storage unit was basically murder headquarters, where Eric Williams kept everything he needed for the murders, including the vehicles that he used in them. Yeah, and all that police gear and stuff kind of goes back to how he might have gotten entrance into the house. Yes. Posing as a, a law enforcement officer. Exactly. And it, of course, matches what the shooter was described as wearing when Mark Hassey died. Right. Now, the storage facility did not have cameras of its own, and that's probably one of the reasons why Eric Williams chose to use it, honestly. Mm. But they found that there was a Chicken Express located right next to the facility's back gate. That Chicken Express had a camera pointed at its drive through except it was a little crooked, so <laughs> that the corner of the camera was actually pointed right at the gate for the storage facility. Oh, wow. They found that the morning of Mark's murder, the camera showed a Ford Sport Track pull up to the gate, pause to enter the code, and then drive into the facility. Moments later, the records at the office tracked that Unit 18 was accessed. And then a light-colored sedan drove away. Later, the sedan came back. Records showed that Unit Number 18 was opened once again. And then minutes later, the Ford Sport track is seen on camera driving away again. Wow, I feel like we have everything we need right now. Yes, and the same thing happened the morning of the McClellan's murders, except a Crown Vic was seen on the footage instead of the other, you know, sedan. Now, guess who owned a Ford Sport track that fit the description seen in the footage? E-R-I-C, Eric did it. Yes, Eric Williams did, in fact, own a Ford Sport track. Now that they had the Crown Vic in their possession, authorities were able to follow that lead as well. They located the previous owner of the car who said that he had sold it on Craigslist to a man who called himself Richard Green for $3,200 in cash. That was the name that was on the title that they found in Eric's garage. Oh, okay. The seller was... What a generic name. Yeah, right? (laughs) 
The seller was given a photo lineup and he picked out Eric Williams as being Richard Richard Green, Green, of course. Gotcha. And by the way, the vehicle was in fact a retired police car. So he went on Craigslist and sought this vehicle out for that specific reason. That's what it appears like, yes. Wow, this guy is evil. Of course, that's just the vehicle associated with the McClelland murders. Where was the light-colored sedan? Evidence for that came once again from Eric's LexisNexis search results. Eric had searched for a vehicle license plate for a white 2001 Mercury Sable. When investigators checked the vehicle's information, they found that on January 28th, just three days before Mark's murder, it had been sold on Craigslist for $1,500 in cash. Is Craigslist still around? We still Craigslisting things? Yeah. Oh, Mm -hmm. man. How much nefarious stuff happens on Craigslist? Gets bought and sold on Craigslist? Yeah, Yeah, you never know. (laughs) Well, then in mid-February... The vehicle had been reported as broken down and abandoned just outside, guess what, Gibson self-storage. Whoa. It had been towed away and was located in an auto storage yard in Kaufman. It was seized for evidence. So this vehicle just broke down. Yes. Couldn't get it back into the storage locker, and he just abandoned it, and then it got towed? Yes. And it's at a, a, a tow lot? Yes. I'm sorry, I'll say it again. He's an idiot. (laughs) Oh, I mean, yeah. Just go get the car back and then destroy it or sell it. Like, why? Why would you leave that loophole out there? Well, I mean, here's an additional loophole. Because once the car was seized for evidence, a pair of goggles, a glove, and a box containing earplugs were all found inside the vehicle. Uh. And these items were all sent in for DNA testing, and much later, results would confirm that Eric's DNA was found on all of them. I bet he thought he was so slick. Probably. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so we're headed down this road where we think that Eric is the killer. All signs point to Eric. I mean, a lot of signs are pointing to Eric. But I have this one lingering detail from the first episode of the part one of the series where he had the sling from an injury. So he clearly couldn't have been the shooter because he had an injured arm. So Mm -hmm. like, do we have any resolution to that or is there any details surrounding it? Well, I mean, this comes out a little bit later in the story, but we can talk about it here. Basically, there was... Nothing to show that Eric Williams had actually had that 
injury, that specific injury he had talked about, or the resulting surgery from that injury. So if we remember last time... Yeah, there were he, no like medical documents or like nothing anything. Nothing at all. Okay. No. No. So if we remember from last time, he had promised, oh, I'm going to give you, I'm going to go ahead and send y'all those medical records uh, on okay. this surgery. So y'all can just take that. You know, I'm good. I didn't kill anybody, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Never followed through. Never followed through and kind of let his attorneys be the middleman between him and them so that the, mm, his attorneys okay. were able to kind of like. Put up a wall. Yeah, yeah Exactly. So, yeah, it came out later that there was absolutely no medical evidence to support the fact that he had any sort of injury or surgery and that most likely he was he had just worn a sling. <laughs> OK, yeah, well, that that clears things up. Now, everything inside the storage unit seemed to belong to Eric Williams, except for one item, an empty two liter bottle of Coke. Eric Williams had type one diabetes and he didn't drink Coke. But his wife, Kim, certainly okay. did. Okay, this is what I was wondering. Like, who was the getaway driver? Mm -hmm. yeah. Really? And in their search of the home, they'd found tons of two liters of Coke. So it kind of made the connection very quickly to them that maybe Kim was more involved than they had ever thought. So for the first time, Kim, who had been a very quiet figure in the story so far, became a suspect as well. A few days after Eric's arrest, law enforcement reached out to her and she agreed to speak with them. Now, at first, she totally denied that her husband or herself had been involved in any of the murders. But investigators pressed the issue, bringing up how Cynthia was completely innocent and didn't deserve to die the way she had. And eventually, Kim broke. Oh, wow. Over many hours and many interviews, Kim ended up describing in painful detail everything that she knew. Kim and Eric had first met online and had been married for 15 years. Kim had been a very lively woman with a job in a medical field, but her health complications had soon left her in a great amount of pain and unable to work. To manage her pain, she'd been prescribed narcotics, and over the years, she ended up developing a very serious addiction. By the time Eric had become justice of the peace, she said that she was heavily abusing morphine, Valium, Oxycontin, as well as other medications. She said she was completely dependent upon Eric, as well as utterly devoted to him. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And then, like, his whole world comes shattering down. So that, yeah. that means that she's not going to have access to all the things that she needs. Well, sure. Yeah. Wow. Kim said, unsurprisingly, that everything began when Eric was first arrested. She said that he called her from jail and told her that investigators were on their way to come search their home for the missing computer monitors. He told her that there was a computer monitor sitting in their living room, and he asked that she hurry and take it to her parents' house before investigators came to search their house, which she did. He did that from jail? Aren't those calls monitored? You'd think so, right? But I don't know if it didn't go through. It just wasn't monitored. It. Not yeah. sure. But yeah, it looks like this was the whereabouts of that third monitor that was never found that Eric claimed that he returned to the IT department. Aha. Uh -huh. From what he told Kim, it seemed like he had intended to give it to a friend rather than use it for the video conferencing system like he'd always claimed. Okay, so he is a thief. Like, I mean, it's kind of what it gets back to from yeah. the beginning. Yeah, it 
Kind of does seem like he was stealing equipment. So he has no right to even have vengeance for mm-hmm. this. I mean, yeah. he's wrong from the get-go. Yes. Probably. Jeez. At least that's, that's, that is definitely what it seems. Nevertheless, Eric told her that he'd been set up, that the accusations against him were untrue and unfounded, and he raged against them. She said she believed him totally. And she joined him in his hatred for the people who had ruined their lives. She said that he started talking about killing Mike and Mark sometime around the trial, but he didn't seem serious about it until around November, when he first came to her and asked her to help him. She said that although she tried to brush him off at first, she eventually agreed to help kill the two. She said that Eric's anger seemed to be directed predominantly towards Mark, so that's why Mark was killed first. I think that's because even though there was that history between Eric and Mike, with the letter Eric had written to the newspaper urging people to vote for Mike's opponent in the DA's race, yeah, yeah, yeah. and even though both had said strong words against him at trial, he held Mark more accountable for his conviction since he was the lead prosecutor on the case. Okay. Directly responsible for his conviction. Yeah. Yeah. His first plan was to kill Mark at his house, and she confirmed that they'd spent time surveilling his neighborhood. Eventually, though, he decided to instead kill Mark in the parking lot outside the courthouse. He named the plan Tombstone, after the 1993 movie no. about the gunfight at the OK Corral. One of our favorite movies. Don't bring this. Don't you disparage the name <laughs> of Tombstone in this. That's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, right. Well, his reasoning was that it was the bad guys versus the good guys. Oh. You know, he was showing up dressed all in black, just like Wyatt Earp and his crew do. And that the killing all went down in the open in public. So you can see how much he romanticized this murder and how much he considered himself to be a good guy. He's he's wider. And a lawman. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. While the bad guys are the outlaw cowboys. Right. Kim said the night before Mark's murder, Eric dressed up in his SWAT gear and his mask to show off his outfit for the big day. She described how they'd driven out to the storage unit beforehand, switched out their car for the Mercury Sable, then waited for Mark to arrive at the parking lot. She said she hadn't been able to stomach watching the shooting, but after, they'd driven straight back to the unit to switch the cars back before going home. Kim said Eric reveled in Mark's death and immediately started planning his next kill. And although several people were on his hit list, he settled on Mike. She said he decided to do this one as a home invasion. And so they surveilled Mike's house and neighborhood as well. Eric decided to kill them on Easter weekend, correctly guessing that the police details would be canceled by then. When Kim pointed out that Cynthia would be home as well, she said that Eric shrugged and said that he would have to kill her as well, calling her, quote, collateral damage. Wow, Uh, that's just... Brutal. Uh, And it also sounds like he's escalating now, like wanting to do a home invasion. He doesn't care if innocent people die. But that's crazy how he just predicted that the patrols were going to be ended by Easter weekend. 
I was wondering if he was still on some kind of like email chain or had access to like emails or I mean it's you know. it's possible that he might have heard something through the grapevine. I mean, he, he was in that lawyer database for a while. I wondered like how quickly all of his accounts got shut down. I was I was like, how would you know? That they they sent out like everybody, hey, the patrols are being ended for Easter weekend. I think for him, like you said, I mean, it, it might have been he he might have heard something at some point, but I think he just correctly guessed wow. that it was the first weekend since the murder. Things had nothing had happened. So people were calming down and that security would be lessened for the weekend. But it really does seem like he's escalating his activity on the second kill. And like, it sounds yeah. also from the tip that he gave police that he had future plans. And you said that he had an extended list of other people, of targets. Oh yeah, we haven't gotten to that. Oh, it makes me wonder if he had an ultimate, like go down in a blaze of glory. Like what's his end all be all? Where is he going with all this? Like what is... Does he think he's going to get reinstated as a judge somehow, or he just wants to be killed by police? Or well, I think as we as we continue along the story, we're going to get maybe a little bit more information as to what was going on in his, in, in his head. Okay, but at this point, I think it's just purely revenge. Wow, so it's yeah. just full rage at this mm -hmm. point. Kim said that the plan was to originally use the same car, so that Mercury Sable was supposed to be used in both murders. But, of course, we know down. it broke down, yeah. Mm -hmm. So he had to rush to get the Crown Vic. She confirmed that he wanted it to look like a police car and that he planned on posing as a member of law enforcement to get Cynthia to answer the door. And I believe that he specifically posed as a sheriff's deputy. And remember that he had those sheriff's deputy patches in oh, the yeah. storage unit. So that was something probably he had added to his uniform to make him look like the real deal. Sure, sure. On the morning of the murders, they again drove to the storage unit, swapped out the vehicles, and then drove to the house. Kim said that she waited outside and watched as Eric went to the door of the house and knocked. She said that she saw a light go on in the house and then saw Eric disappear inside. When he returned, he said the job was done, and he described how when he was leaving the house, he saw that Cynthia was still alive. She was making moaning noises. So he stopped to fire one last bullet into the top of her head as she lay dying on the ground. Jesus. This matched with forensic evidence, which showed that there was a single shot to the top of Cynthia's head. Okay. And of course, that was something that only the killer would know. Sure, that so makes her story really credible. Exactly. Yeah. Kim said that they felt, quote, happy and satisfied after the deaths of Mike and Cynthia. Really? and grilled steaks at her parents' house in celebration oh that god. very night. Yeah. Oh my god, who can eat after that and celebrate? These people are monsters. But that wasn't all. Kim went on to say that Eric began to plan another murder right after the McClellans, and there were two people at the top of his list. The first was the county court at law judge Early Wiley, Several years before, when he was still an attorney, Judge Wiley had angered Eric when she had accused him of cooking his books, charging for hours that he hadn't actually worked. Which now we probably think he probably did cook his books. Mm, yeah. Well, she had been nice about it. She hadn't taken any action against him, and she'd basically just given him a verbal warning. But that was enough for him to apparently want her dead. 
The other potential victim was Judge Glenn Ashworth. If you remember from last time, Eric had been Judge Ashworth's court coordinator while he was still in law school, and Ashworth had been his longtime friend and mentor for years. According to Janice's testimony at his theft trial, it was Judge Ashworth who'd claimed responsibility for Eric after he'd threatened her, which had helped encourage her not to press charges. But it was that very same situation that caused Judge Ashworth to be in Eric's sights. See, Eric believed that it was Ashworth who had brought the story to the prosecution and led them to Janice in the first place, which of course ended with Janice's damning testimony against him in his theft trial. Now, it's not clear whether or not there was any truth to this if Ashworth had really led Mike and Mark to Janice, but that's apparently what Eric believed. Yeah, at least in his mind, he was a target. Yes, and it was a betrayal that Kim said Eric thought deserved an even harsher punishment than the others. Oh my gosh, it sounds like his his brutality is also increasing. Yes. Kim said that Eric dreamed about kidnapping Judge Ashworth, shooting him with a crossbow, and then taking him back to their house. He planned on boring a hole into the judge's stomach and pouring napalm inside. So again, remember how there was a crossbow and napalm found within the storage unit. That's that's weird. Yeah. She said that afterward, he planned on putting the judge's body in their freezer and burying it in their yard. In fact, she said that he even dug up her roses to see if the bed was large and deep enough to fit a body. Kim said that during this whole period of time, he was drinking heavily and behaving erratically. He started to believe that their house was bugged. And so whenever he wanted to talk about these murders that he was wanting to commit, he would drag her into the pantry with a deck of cards. And if he wanted to discuss the murder of Early Wiley, he would hold up a queen. And if it was Glenn Ashworth's death he wanted to talk about, he would hold up a king. Now, beyond Wiley and Ashworth, we know that there was also evidence that Eric had been toying with the idea of killing Shook and Worski as well, the two special prosecutors. Yeah, Dallas. Yeah, so that's potentially four additional murders he was looking at besides the three he had already done. This is a lot of detail that we're getting from his wife, though. Yes. uh, That seems to corroborate a lot of the evidence that has been found. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she gave them everything that they could have wanted. Now, finally, Kim said that Eric had a fascination with Christopher Dorner. Dorner was the police officer with the LAPD who went on a nine-day shooting spree targeting law enforcement officers and their families after claiming he had been wrongly fired from the force after filing complaints of excessive force. Yeah, I remember that. Mm -hmm. Now, before his death, Dorner posted an 11,000-word diatribe about how he'd been wronged by the LAPD, and he included a long list of the people he believed deserved to die because of it. He wounded three people and killed four before being killed in a police shootout. Dorner's killing spree had started just a few days after Mark's death, so it had been very recent and huge news. So he's kind of copycatting. Okay. Now, a copy of Dorner's manifesto was found inside Eric's house during their search. Uh, 
And Kim said that Eric read it over and over again and seemed to view Dorner as some sort of sympathetic hero. And obviously, there are huge parallels between Christopher Dorner and Eric Williams. They were both members of the criminal justice system, both seemed to view themselves as heroes fighting against injustice, and both used their personal revenge story as justification for the murder of innocent people. Now, because Kim admitted to being the getaway driver in the murders, she too was arrested and charged with capital murder on account of Texas's law of parties. Now, we've talked about this many times before on this show, most thoroughly in our series about the Texas Seven. But the law of parties allows a person to be held criminally responsible for another person's crimes if they encouraged or assisted in the carrying out of those crimes. That's right. We also covered the founding of that law in Geraldine Davis's case. Yes, Which was in East Texas, almost like right next door to where this happens. And we talked about it in Miguel Martinez's case. This this has come up so many times in Texas law. This is just a very important statute that you have to be be familiar with. Mm -hmm. There are a few states that have the law of party statutes, but Texas is the only state that applies it to death penalty cases, meaning that a person can be sentenced to death even if they themselves did not kill anyone. Shortly after Kim's arrest, Eric was also officially charged with three counts of capital murder. Within a few weeks, Kim, now clean and sober from her time in jail, filed for divorce. Now, although she was being charged with capital murder, Kim continued to assist the investigation. She told investigators that Eric had trouble deciding on which of the guns from his collection he wanted to use on the McClellans. So he'd gone to a remote underpass and did some target practice on the pillars of the highway. So he's just standing out there in the middle of nowhere under an overpass shooting at some pillars. Why not go out into a field or in the woods? (sighs) I mean, I don't know. That's so weird, bizarre (laughs) that he didn't get caught. Yeah. Well, investigators located the spot and collected some of the spent shell casings that they found there. And ballistics confirmed that many of them were shot with the same weapon used to kill Cynthia and Mike McClelland. Kim also had some idea of where Eric might have hidden additional evidence. She said that on the night of the McClelland's murders, when Eric told deputies they'd gone for a drive to Quinlan, Eric had actually driven them to Lake Tawakani, which is a pretty good-sized lake about 40 miles northwest of Kaufman and right next to Quinlan. She said Eric had driven about halfway across a bridge that crosses the lake, stopped the car, and threw a black bag into the lake. So that's where all the the missing ballistics barrels from the upper part of the mechanisms are probably... Well, they didn't know what it was going to be, but they certainly hoped this was going to be some of the murder weapons. Yeah, it's going to be something important that he wanted to get rid of mm-hmm. involved in these murders. Wow, she's really just like telling them all. Very helpful, yes. Yeah. Kim led them approximately to the location of the bridge where Eric dumped the evidence, and divers were called in to sweep the lake. Now, the lake is, is a pretty big lake, and it took several attempts, but eventually the black bag was recovered. However, they found that what Kim had mistaken for a bag was really the hood that Eric had worn during Mark's murder. 
It was one of those Halloween masks that blacks out your face. It was one of those, you know, hood and cowl situations with the black fabric covering your face. That's what it was that he had thrown overboard. Inside the hood, two revolvers were discovered. Oh, the murder weapons from Mark's case. Well, it was a Ruger and a Smith & Wesson. And yes, just like you guessed, ballistics tests proved that these were the weapons used to kill Mark Hassie. And to go back to the GSR results, handling the weapons here and throwing them into the lake was probably when Eric's hands became contaminated with the gunshot residue that was then picked up from the swab evidence. Because he took these guns, threw them into the lake, then immediately drove back to Kaufman where he took that GSR test. So that's how it got transferred. Yes. So the act of getting rid of evidence is actually what provided evidence to law enforcement. Yeah, it's also really interesting that the the gunshot residue from the two revolvers involved in the first murder were what were, were deposited onto his hands that were later tested in in the second murder case. Yeah. And it is, like you said, it's interesting that he went immediately to drop the revolvers in the lake, even though he had actually just committed the second murder at that point, which was McClellan's murders. Yeah. I wonder where those are. Yeah. So by the time the trial started in December of 2014, they had a mountain of evidence against <sighs> Eric Williams to implicate him in the three murders. This might be the most just concrete case that we've <laughs> ever covered. And the, sh- the the sheer amount of evidence against this individual is um, just amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cut and dry at this point. There's no way out. However, prosecutors Shook and Worski ultimately decided to try Eric only for Cynthia's murder. A jury would be most sympathetic to her story, and it meant that should he be found not guilty for whatever reason, they could try him again for one of the other murders. I see. However, this also meant that they wouldn't be able to bring up anything related to Mark's death in the trial. And that was a little bit of a problem because there was actually more physical evidence linking him to Mark's death than it was to Cynthia's death. Ah, That's so weird. Now, for a murder to be considered a capital offense and thus subject to the death penalty in Texas, certain conditions have to be met. One is actually if the murder was in retaliation for a criminal case. But that didn't apply to Cynthia's murder. It only applied to Mike and Mark's murders. That's an interesting strategic sidestep by the prosecution. Yeah. Well, another condition is that the murder occurred during the commission of another felony. Now, usually this is applied where someone is killed during a burglary or assault, something like that. In this case against Eric Williams, the other felony was Mike's murder. So that's why they went forward with one murder charge and how they were still able to keep it a capital offense. Gotcha. Because of how huge the story was and how much it had affected the community of Kaufman County, the decision was made to move the trial to Rockwall County. Yeah, and that's just directly east of Dallas. Yeah, it's right It's right there next door. Yeah. The trial began in December of 2014, almost two years after Mark Hassie's murder. 
Even without being able to present all the evidence they had regarding Mark's murder, there was still a lot that connected him to Cynthia's, all of which was presented by the prosecution. Meanwhile, the defense didn't present a single witness. Although they, <laughs> yeah, although they, they did point out that no fingerprints, hair, or DNA tied Eric Williams to Cynthia's murder. In the end, after a short deliberation of one hour and 40 minutes, Eric Williams was found guilty for the murder of Cynthia McClelland. Next came the punishment phase, and this is when the prosecution was able to present all of the physical evidence linking Eric to Mark's murder as well. So the mask, the murder weapons, the mercury sable, as well as all the DNA evidence found inside. Right. Yeah. During the punishment phase, you can you can present all kinds of other stuff. Exactly. They also brought out several more witnesses, including two who had testified at the theft trial, both Janice and John Burt, the attorney who said Eric threatened to kill him and his family over a simple scheduling conflict. Early Wiley also testified, describing what had happened when she found out that he had been overcharging his hours. So this was one of the other people that was on his hit list. Now, interestingly, just a few days before Eric's arrest, Early Wiley was appointed by Governor Rick Perry to serve as Mike's replacement as Kaufman County District Attorney. Oh, wow. A job which she continues to hold to this day. Good for her. Yeah, right? Now, she also wrote a book about her life, which includes her perspective of this story called A Target on My Back, A Prosecutor's Terrifying Tale of Life on a Hit List. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Of course, the most dramatic testimony against Eric was his ex-wife, Kim. Oh, I can imagine. She's got all the deets. Exactly. She voluntarily testified, so there was no official deal in place for her at the time. She was very honest about her drug addiction and about her own willing participation in the murders, saying, quote, I was so drugged up and I so believed in Eric and everything he told me. His anger was my anger. Uh, okay. So she was actively taking a lot of drugs like during this time. Yes. Okay. Well, that starts to make a little more sense as yeah. to why she was such a, a willing participant in all of this. Yes, absolutely. She also described how Eric was planning on killing Early Wiley as well as Judge Ashworth. The defense was much more active during the punishment phase. They also put a bunch of people on the stand as character witnesses for Eric, including his childhood scoutmaster and friends from when he was a kid. They did their best to humanize Eric and try to sway the jury to vote to save his life and choose life in prison. However, the jury ended up sentencing Eric Williams to death. The judge told him, quote, At the end of the day, you murdered a little old lady, and you would have murdered two more innocent people if you had the opportunity. That puts you right there with Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, and Richard Speck. Okay, well, that's an interesting comment by the judge, because I've been wondering the same kind of things this entire time. What's the line between spree killer and making a Christmas list of, like, you know, who you want to take out, if you're going into some bloodlust rage, versus a serial killer? Yeah. 
which it seems like he might be in the middle ground, like somewhere in the gray, because he was getting enjoyment out of this. He was being fulfilled. He was ramping up. He was getting more brutal. Uh, he was he was designing new ways to murder people in different ways to fulfill his fantasy of taking out all these people who had wronged him. So where do we draw the line in the sand? Like, is he a serial killer or, you know, is it just still up in the air? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question because, like, like you said, it he seems like a spree killer and that these were revenge fantasies for him. But at the same time, there were months that these murders that he actually did commit, you know, there was months between them. Yeah. So there was a proper cooling down period. Which is part of what you need to have as a serial yes. killer. You have to have a cooling down period. And with Early Wiley, for example, this was a completely different situation that he was angry at her about, you yeah. know, versus the theft accusations and everything else. So it was almost as if he was just, he wanted to kill anyone who had ever wronged him in his mind, which is not a serial killer necessarily, but it's also not a spree killer necessarily. Like it's it's a very unique phenomenon and it's very much like somebody like christopher dorner who yeah. this is somebody who feels like he is justified in what he's doing that he has revenge and that he's doing the right thing almost for the benefit of the rest of us which is obviously crazy to think about but this is what these kinds of people believe so is that what his end all like i guess if we're going to try and put ourselves into his headspace is that what he was trying to do is leave society a better place by taking these people I out? Mean, I mean, I don't I don't know. I think that's maybe what he would have thought he was doing. Okay. But no, he was just killing people who he thought did something that wronged him. Yeah, and at least from that's his, all his wife's accounts, it sounds like he really enjoyed it. And it built on these fantasies that were growing. I, that's what it seems like for sure. Yeah, that's he what was, makes me lean more towards the serial killer side of it. Is the enjoyment part, the romanticizing about it? Like it sounds like he was getting off on this. I mean, yeah, yeah, it does sound like that. Now, Eric has since appealed his sentence back in 2017, but it was upheld, and he currently remains on death row. Soon after Eric's trial, Kim accepted a plea deal offered to her by the prosecution. She pled guilty to the murder of Mark Hassey and received a 40-year sentence. According to Catherine Casey, she wrote that this was so there was one person officially charged in each of the cases. So you had Eric convicted for Cynthia's murder, and you had her convicted for Mark's murder. But nobody really is ultimately convicted for Mike. That's true, but I mean, he was also involved in yeah, there with... Yeah, you can lump those together, yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. And by the way, the families of the victims did approve this plea deal with Kim. Okay. So this was something they found perfectly acceptable. Kim will be eligible for parole in 2033. Another 10 years or so for her. Now, speaking of Catherine Casey, she got involved with the case around the time of the trial. Obviously, Eric and Kim had been inundated with interview requests by the media. And besides those few short requests that Eric had granted right at the beginning, they both had refused to talk. Catherine Casey is a very prolific true crime writer and journalist who had been following the case for some time. And so she decided to shoot her shot 
and she put in requests for both of them. And to her surprise, both Eric and Kim agreed to speak with her. Really? Yes. And so over the next year and a half, Casey wrote to them back and forth in prison and even came and visited them in prison and spoke to them in person. She researched the case and spoke to others involved. In 2018, she published the book In Plain Sight, where she lays out the entire timeline of the crimes, along with exactly what Kim and Eric were doing and planning along the way. The book provides a ton of context about all of these sort of like Game of Thrones level politics that was that were going on in Coffin County, as well as these interpersonal conflicts that precipitated the murders. Sure, yeah. And like I said last episode, there is so much more to this case and so many more details that Catherine Casey was able to wrest from Kim and sort of get her side of the story. And that's what makes her book so special. So again, that's why her book is just something that you need to read if you want to know more about this case. It's very important that you just you go ahead and just read her book. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It sounds fascinating. Casey describes Kim as a completely different person now that she's off drugs. And she describes her as being profoundly regretful of her actions, uh. especially Cynthia's murder. And it seems like In Kim's drug haze, as well as Eric's manipulation of her and her utter dependence on him, Kim thought that she agreed with killing Mike and Mark. But even then, she knew that killing Cynthia was wrong and unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, Eric had killed Mark at a time where he knew that Mark would be alone. He could have done the same to Mike, but he did not. He opted to kill Mike when he knew Cynthia was there and would have to be killed as well. That's right. Yeah. And well, I'm glad that, that she spoke to all this because as it was unfolding throughout the episode, I was ready to just like ride her out of town and tar and feather her and just lump her in with Eric. But it does sound like she was manipulated and, you know, uh, under the influence the entire time, uh, just a tool that Eric was using like a pawn on the chessboard. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Casey describes Kim as being very open and honest about pretty much everything. She was open and honest with investigators when she was telling her story, and she was very open and honest with Catherine and Casey when she was doing her research. And in fact, that's where predominantly she got all of her information on the case, which was really through Kim. Eric, on the other hand, went the route of complete and absolute denial. (laughs) Shockingly, right? Can you believe that? Even though Eric talked to Catherine Casey quite a bit, he would never admit to anything about the murders. And I mean, this is a guy who wouldn't even admit to stealing the monitors or the other office supplies. This is not a man who is ever going to admit to being a murderer. So that's probably not a huge shock. It's not also not shocking that he liked to talk a lot to mm-hmm. anyone who would listen about anything other yeah. than the murders. Yeah. He has since said that all of the stuff found in the storage unit wasn't his. And he even goes so far as to say that he knows, he knows who the real murderer is in these cases. But of course, he refuses to say who. What about the DNA from the goggles and like all that stuff? Well, it's all set up. 
Okay. And I th- oh, I do believe okay. that if I were to hazard a guess, that's that's ultimately what his point is. Is this this is all a part of the setup that first started when he was uh, convicted for his oh, theft? Oh yeah, you know the the hierarchy, the the echelons of the Kaufman County Illuminati have <laughs> have figured out a way to to also kill two lawyers and an innocent woman. Yeah, but also pin it on him. Yes, that. Oh my god! I hate, yeah. I hate this guy. Yeah, he's he's pretty awful. But I have actually a little bit of good news. I know we're about to get into your good news. Oh, I have a little yeah. bit of good news to like end sure. this story because I think it's a really cute note. Pre good news. So Cynthia had a daughter named Christina, and we remember that Cynthia had a close friend named Leah. Leah had a son, the police officer named CJ. Well, Cynthia had often teased that she wanted her daughter Christina and Leah's son CJ to get together, once even asking CJ if he believed in arranged marriages, which really embarrassed (laughs) the heck out of Christina, as you can imagine. Yeah. Well, it just so happens that Christina must have been on to something. She must have known something was up because Christina and CJ started dating And just before the trial, they ended up getting married. Oh, wow. And so obviously this was a very bittersweet moment because Cynthia and Mike were not there to celebrate with them. But they knew that Cynthia would have been very overjoyed to have known that her daughter was getting with her with like, you know, her friend's son who she had always teased about like oh you guys are pretty perfect together and you should get together and then they eventually did so i think that was it's a very cute ending to such a very tragic story it is a very sweet note and at least she got to be matchmaker in the end exactly yeah. yeah and hopefully yeah i'm sure they're gonna carry her with them the rest of their lives and and then uh that that that's really cool a very sweet moment Boy, what a whopper of a case that you brought to us. That was a lot to take in, but it was all very good and all very woven together. One of the most fascinating, interesting cases we've done in a while. And I love the two-parter of it. I was not expecting part two to be this intricate and fascinating and complex. I'm glad it was because boy, what a tale it was. Yeah. So you can see why it had to be a two-parter. We had to go into so many details in this case. But very good job and an excellent two-parter to cement our centennial episode, our century mark. We're now Centurion podcasters. I hope that everyone found it as interesting as I did because I thought this was a spectacular episode. But would you like some good news after all this, Aaron? I would. Always. Okay, question. First question. Okay. I know we dabble in different types of good news from time to time. I know you like animal news. Mm-hmm. Do you like baby animal news? 150%. All right. Well, I've got a good one for you right after this. Oh, buddy. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. (laughs) 
All right. Welcome back to Good News, everybody. And, you know, Erin said she likes animal news and baby animal news, but I've got something better for you. I got two stories about two baby animals. I'm excited. I like baby animals. Okay, great. Uh, (laughs) And it also involves two different zoos from our stomping ground from Dallas and Fort Worth. So let's start with the first one. Uh, This past week, Dallas Zoo made a major announcement. They told the world via Twitter that a baby hippo was born in late October, just a day before Halloween, uh, to which they said, quote, what a treat in a Halloween-themed post. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's no trick. It's a hippo treat. It is a little treat. Yeah. An adult female hippo named Biopolo gave birth to a healthy calf on Sunday, October 30th, around about 5.30 p.m. Zookeepers were closely monitoring Biopolo's, uh, you know, her development uh, over several weeks. She was getting close to giving birth, and they actually had her sectioned off into an area where she had her own pool, and there was a birthing window and cameras set up, very carefully monitored. And then her pregnancy started developing really quickly. Uh, And this actually started happening over, you know, the course of just a few hours. And the zoo says that her labor uh, went very smoothly. And if you are interested, you can actually watch the birthing of a hippo via their Twitter feed. Mm, I'll skip that. (laughs) I mean, it sounds really gross, but it happens in the water. It's like a water birth, you know? Okay. Because they're hippos. Like, you know, they live in the water. So it's not... No, it's not. It, okay. It's not that gross. Because I've seen a lot of birthed animals, and while it, you know, the wonder of nature and <laughs> and life, is, it's great, and we should all respect that. But I don't, I don't need to be like all up in it. You know what I mean? I, I usually feel the same way, but then I just happened to end up watching it, and I was like, well, that's that's kind of beautiful. Oh, beautiful! I love yeah, it. Yeah, and the baby is obviously super cute, and there's there's a, a really famous baby hippo, Fiona. You know, yeah, that course. is all over the internet. She's the cutest little thing. Well, this is the new Fiona, and it doesn't have a name <gasps> yet. So, but they do say that the little baby hippo was observed nursing within an hour of birth and spent the rest of the night laying close to its mother in their pool behind the scenes at Dallas Zoo. Aww, it's super cute. cute. And I will put the uh, links to all these stories in the episode notes, by the way, for both of these. So you can yeah. get close up and personal with hippo birth. Like I said, the baby's unnamed, and the zoo staff usually waits to get to know an animal's personality before picking a name. Uh, the zoologists estimate that the baby was about 50 to 60 pounds at birth, which is about average for newborn hippos. Eventually, hippos will grow to between 10.8 to 16.5 feet long and up to 5.2 feet tall at the shoulder. The average female weighs around 3,000 pounds, while males can weigh anywhere from 3,500 pounds to 9,920 pounds. Whoa, that's a big boy! Yeah. So a lot more variance in males than in the females. But did you know that the ancestor of the hippo, Anthracotheris, which first emerged about 40 million years ago, roamed around North America possibly until the end of the last ice age and was around with paleo-Indians and early Native Americans. Wait, what? Yeah, there is evidence that the ancestor of the hippo was in North America, specifically in Texas. Dang, 
Interesting. Yeah, there you go. Gotta uh, do some research now. Yeah, you gotta get that research. But the precious new baby hippo will debut in the hippopotamus habitat in a few weeks at the Dallas Zoo, and zookeepers hope that they will both join with uh, Biopello's other female child, Adana, who will turn three in May. So this female hippo is just churning out babies and is an awesome mother by all accounts. Awesome. Yeah. So next we have another baby animal. You ready for number two? Yes. The Fort Worth Zoo welcomed its newest member of their primate family last week, the male Western lowland gorilla that was born by parents Gracie and Elmo is the second one of the species to be born at the zoo. Do you, oh, do you know I the see. other baby? I don't. His name is Gus, and he was an internet sensation, and he's awesome. And I will tell you that the best time to go see Gus and his now newborn little baby brother is during the winter months because they can't be out when it's cold because it's very bad for Western lowland gorillas. So they ha- they will be in the interior enclosures and you get up close and personal with them through the window. Oh, okay. And Gus is a riot. Like he loves to play and he loves to interact with people at the window. Last time I was there and I saw Gus, he was playing and like messing around with kids that were up there and imitating them. He's hilarious. <laughs> and now they have a newborn baby, lowland gorilla, that will be there in the same exhibit. So... Uh, Cute. And, yeah, and the, the whole primate exhibit at Fort Worth Zoo is spectacular. It's one of, it, actually, it's been voted number one zoo in North America several times. And the primate exhibit is just amazing. So uh, go and check it out if you have it. I don't know if I mentioned this, but Gus was born in 2016. So it's been a little while. He now has his little baby brother. So Gus is now six years old. And uh, the baby doesn't have a name either, but they say that he is staying close to Gracie and also Elmo. Elmo's been photographed, like, playing with the baby and holding the baby. Apparently, Elmo's a really good dad. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, yeah, this is his second boy, uh, so he's, he's experienced. According to a tweet from the zoo, the little newborn lowland gorilla weighed between four to five pounds at birth. And the public can meet him on November 19th at the 30th anniversary festival of the zoo. Western lowland gorillas are critically endangered, according to the World Wildlife Fund. Even though they boast a large population of all gorilla subspecies, poaching and disease like the deadly Ebola virus has reduced their numbers by more than 60% in the last 20 to 25 years. So it's really important to like better understand like how to breed Western lowland gorillas in captivity and also how to hopefully repopulate Western lowland gorillas if we need to in the future. Now, we talked about how big hippos can be. Adult male gorillas weigh on average about 300 pounds and up to 500 pounds. So pretty big. Big boys. Big boys. And they stand up to six feet tall and have arm spans up to eight feet. And eventually Gus and his little brother will probably have to be moved to another zoo or enclosure because they will eventually compete with Elmo at some point because he is the master of his harem of gorillas, Mm -hmm. which is what it's called. Yes. Yeah, so if you want to find out any more information about those sweet little babies that were just born, you can follow the links in the bottom of the notes. I want to go see the new gorilla babies at the zoo, for sure. And hippo babies. And hippo babies, of course. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, she's already like uh, play biting on her mom and stuff. Oh, yeah. baby animals are just the best. They are the best. Well, excellent job. Let's go ahead and mosey on over to the after show. Well, we're in the after show now. You can find us on Twitter at ACNC Podcast and on Instagram at All Crime No Cattle or on Facebook in our discussion group, All Crime No Cattle Facebook discussion group. That's correct. And we're about to name off some really awesome patrons. And if you want to become a patron of the show, just head over to patreon.com slash all crime no cattle. There's a lot of goodies and benefits over there. If you don't like listening to commercials, don't. Boo. Just uh, pay a couple bucks a month and you won't have any commercials. Yeah. You can also get more episodes and extra content. It's really cool. Anyways, our newest patrons that need their shout outs are Megan Romero, Brandy Garza, Jennifer Davidson, Joyce Davis. Thank you so much for your generous contribution to the show. And as always, we also have to let you know who were the uh, honorary producers of this episode, which are our Texas Rangers, the highest tier that we have on our Patreon. And that would be Amanda Mattaford, Don Maloney, E.G., Gail Parker, Jamie Gray, Jennifer N. Magnolia, Jessica Layfield, Justin Ware, Leah Daugherty, Lynn Chance, Vicky Sweet, and Sarah Nicholson. You guys are the heart and soul of this show. We appreciate y'all so much. Thank you for supporting us. All right, and I think with that, we are done. So until next time, crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Adios. Goodbye. Goodbye.